Section 26 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 28, The Close of the War, Part 2. The repulse of the Chernaya was a heavy, indeed a fatal stroke for the Russians. The siege had been progressing for some time with considerable activity. The French had drawn their lines nearer and nearer to the besieged city. The Russians, however, had also been throwing up fresh works, which brought them nearer to the lines of the Allies, and sometimes made the latter seem as if they were the besieged rather than the besiegers. The Malakoff Tower and the Mamelon Battery in front of it became the scenes and the objects of constant struggle. The Russians made desperate night sorties again and again and were always repulsed. On June 7th, the English assaulted the quarries in front of the Redan, and the French attacked the Mamelon. The attack on both sides was successful, but it was followed on the 18th of the same month by a desperate and wholly unsuccessful attack on the Redan and the Malakoff batteries. There was some misapprehension on the side of the French commander, which led to a lack of precision and unity in the carrying out of the enterprise, and it became therefore a failure on the part of both the Allies. A pompous and exalting address was issued by Prince Gorchakov, in which he informed the Russian army that the enemy had been beaten, driven back with enormous loss, and announced that the hour was approaching when the pride of the enemy will be lowered, their armies swept from our soil like chaff blown away by the wind. On September 5th, the Allies made an attack almost simultaneously upon the Malakoff and the Redan. It was agreed that as soon as the French had got possession of the Malakoff, the English should attack the Redan, the hoisting of the French flag on the former fort to be the signal for our men to move. The French were brilliantly successful in their part of the attack, and in a quarter of an hour from the beginning of the attempt, the flag of the Empire was floating on the parapets. The English then at once advanced upon the Redan, but it was a very different task from that which the French had had to undertake. The French were near the Malakoff. The English were very far away from the Redan. The distance our soldiers had to traverse left them almost helplessly exposed to the Russian fire. They stormed the parapets of the Redan despite all the difficulties of their attack, but they were not able to hold the place. The attacking party was far too small in numbers. Reinforcements did not come in time. The English held their own for an hour against odds that might have seemed overwhelming. But it was simply impossible for them to establish themselves in the Redan, and the remnant of them that could withdraw had to retreat to the trenches. It was only the old story of the war. Superb courage and skill of officers and men. Outrageously bad generalship. The attack might have been renewed that day, but the English commander-in-chief, General Simpson, declared with naivete that the trenches were too crowded for him to do anything. Thus the attack failed because there were too few men and could not be renewed because there were too many. The cautious commander resolved to make another attempt the next morning. But before the morrow came, there was nothing to attack. The Russians withdrew during the night from the south side of Sebastopol. A bridge of boats had been constructed across the bay to connect the north and the south sides of the city, and across this bridge Prince Gorchakov, 
quietly withdrew his troops. The bombardment kept up by the Allies had been so terrible and so close for several days, and their long-range guns were so entirely superior to anything possessed by or indeed known to the Russians, that the defenses of the south side were being irreparably destroyed. The Russian general felt that it would be impossible for him to hold the city much longer, and that to remain there was only useless waste of life. But as he said in his own dispatch, it is not Sebastopol which we have left to them, but the burning ruins of the town which we ourselves set fire to, having maintained the honor of the defense in such a manner that our great-grandchildren may recall with pride the remembrance of it and send it on to all posterity. It was some time before the Allies could venture to enter the abandoned city. The arsenals and powder magazines were exploding, the flames were bursting out of every public building and every private house. The Russians had made of Sebastopol another Moscow. With the close of that long siege, which had lasted nearly a year, the war may be said to have ended. The brilliant episode of Kars, its splendid defense, and its final surrender was brought to its conclusion, indeed, after the fall of Sebastopol. But although it naturally attracted peculiar attention in this country, it could have no effect on the actual fortunes of such a war. Cars was defended by Colonel Fenwick Williams, an English officer, who had been sent all too late to reorganize the Turkish forces in Armenia after they had suffered a terrible defeat at the hands of the Russians. Never probably had a man a more difficult task than that which fell to the lot of Williams. He had to contend against official stupidity, corruption, delay. He could get nothing done without having first to remove whole mountains of obstruction and to quicken into life and movement an apathy which seemed like that of a paralyzed system. He concentrated his efforts at last upon the defense of cars, and he held the place against overwhelming Russian forces and against an enemy far more appalling, starvation itself. With his little garrison, he repelled a tremendous attack of the Russian army under General Muraviev in a battle that lasted nearly seven hours, and as the result of which the Russians left on the field more than 5,000 dead. He had to surrender at last to famine. But the very articles of surrender to which the conqueror consented became the trophy of Williams and his men. The garrison were allowed to leave the place with all the honors of war, and, as a testimony to the valorous resistance made by the garrison of cars, the officers of all ranks are to keep their swords. Williams and his English companions, Colonel Lake, Major Teasdale, Major Thompson, and Dr. Sandwith, had done as much for the honor of their country at the close of the war as Butler and Naismith had done at its opening. The curtain of that great drama rose and fell upon a splendid scene of English heroism. The war was virtually over. Austria had been exerting herself throughout its progress in the interests of peace, and after the fall of Sebastopol she made a new effort with greater success. Two of the belligerents were indeed now anxious to be out of the struggle almost on any terms. These were France and Russia. The new emperor of Russia was not a man personally inclined for war, nor had he his father's overbearing and indomitable temper. 
he could not but see that his father had greatly overrated the military strength and resources of his country. He had accepted the war only as a heritage of necessary evil with little hope of any good to come of it to Russia, and he welcomed any chance of ending it on fair terms. France, or at least her emperor, was all but determined to get back again into peace. If England had held out, it is highly probable that she would have had to do so alone. For this, indeed, Lord Palmerston was fully prepared as a last resource, sooner than submit to terms which he considered unsatisfactory. He said so, and he meant it. I can fancy, Lord Palmerston wrote to Lord Clarendon in his bright, good-humoured way, how I should be hooted in the House of Commons if I were to get up and say that we had agreed to an imperfect and unsatisfactory arrangement. I had better beforehand take the Chiltern hundreds. Lord Palmerston, however, had no occasion to take the Chiltern hundreds. The Congress of Paris opened on February 26, 1856, and on March 30th, the Treaty of Peace was signed by the plenipotentiaries of the great powers. Prussia had been admitted to the Congress, which therefore represented England, France, Austria, Prussia, Turkey, and Sardinia. The treaty began by declaring that Kars was to be restored to the Sultan, and that Sebastopol and all other places taken by the Allies were to be given back to Russia. The sublime port was admitted to participate in all the advantages of the public law and system of Europe. The other powers engaged to respect the independence and territorial integrity of Turkey. They guaranteed in common the strict observance of that engagement, and announced that they would in consequence consider any act tending to a violation of it as a question of general interest. The Sultan issued a firman for ameliorating the condition of his Christian subjects, and communicated to the other powers the purposes of the firman, emanating spontaneously from his sovereign will. No right of interference, it was distinctly specified, was given to the other powers by this concession on the Sultan's part. The article of the treaty which referred to the Black Sea is of especial importance. The Black Sea is neutralized, its waters and its ports, thrown open to the mercantile marine of every nation, are formerly and in perpetuity interdicted to the flag of war, either of the powers possessing its coasts or of any other power, with the exceptions mentioned in Articles 14 and 19. The exceptions only reserved the right of each of the powers to have the same number of small armed vessels in the Black Sea to act as a sort of maritime police and to protect the coasts. The Sultan and the Emperor engaged to establish and maintain no military or maritime arsenals in that sea. The navigation of the Danube was thrown open. In exchange for the towns restored to him and in order more fully to secure the navigation of the Danube, the emperor consented to a certain rectification of his frontier in Bessarabia, the territory ceded by Russia to be annexed to Moldavia under the suzerainty of the port. Moldavia and Wallachia, continuing under the suzerainty of the Sultan, were to enjoy all the privileges and immunities they already possessed under the guarantee of the contracting powers, but with no separate right of intervention in their affairs. The existing position of Servia was assured. A convention respecting the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus was made by all the powers. By this convention, 
the sultan maintained the ancient rule prohibiting ships of war of foreign powers from entering the straits so long as the port is at peace during time of peace the sultan engaged to admit no foreign ships of war into the bosphorus or the dardanelles the sultan reserved to himself the right as in former times of delivering firmans of passage for light vessels under the flag of war employed in the service of foreign powers that is to say of their diplomatic missions a separate convention as to the black sea between russia and turkey agreed that the contracting parties should have in that sea six light steam vessels of not more than eight hundred tons and four steam or sailing vessels of not more than two hundred tons each thus the controversies about the christian provinces the straits and the black sea were believed to be settled the great central business of the congress however was to assure the independence and the territorial integrity of turkey now admitted to a place in the family of european states as it did not seem clear to those most particularly concerned in bringing about this result that the arrangements adopted in full congress had been sufficient to guarantee turkey from the enemy they most feared there was a tripartite treaty afterwards agreed to between england france and austria this document bears date in paris april fifteenth eighteen fifty six by it the contracting parties guaranteed jointly and severally the independence and integrity of the ottoman empire and declared that any infraction of the general treaty of march thirtieth would be considered by them a casus belli it is probable that not one of the three contracting parties was quite sincere in the making of this treaty it appears to have been done at the instigation of austria much less for the sake of turkey than in order that she might have some understanding of a special kind with some of the great powers and thus avoid the semblance of isolation which she now especially dreaded having russia to fear on the one side and seeing italy already raising its head on the other england did not particularly care about the tripartite treaty which was pressed upon her and which she accepted trusting that she might never have to act upon it and france accepted it without any liking for it probably without the least intention of ever acting on it the congress was also the means of bringing about a treaty between england and france and sweden by this engagement sweden undertook not to cede to russia any part of her present territories or any rights of fishery and the two other powers agreed to maintain sweden by force against aggression the congress of paris was remarkable too for the fact that the plenipotentiaries before separating came to an agreement on the subject of the right of search and the rules generally of maritime war they agreed to the four following declarations first privateering is and remains abolished second the neutral flag covers enemies goods with the exception of contraband of war third neutral goods with the exception of contraband of war are not liable to capture under an enemy's flag fourth blockades in order to be binding must be effective that is to say maintained by a force sufficient really to prevent access to the enemy's coast at the opening of the war great britain had already virtually given up the claims she once made against neutrals and which were indeed untenable in the face of modern civilization she gladly agreed therefore to ratify so far as her declaration went 
the doctrines which would abolish forever the principle upon which those and kindred claims once rested. It was agreed, however, that the rules adopted at the Congress of Paris should only be binding on those states that had acceded or should accede to them. The government of the United States had previously invited the great European powers by a circular to assent to the broad doctrine that free ships make free goods. At the instance of England, it was answered that the adoption of that doctrine must be conditional on America's renouncing the right of privateering. To this the United States raised some difficulty, and the declarations of the Congress were therefore made without America's assenting to them. With many other questions, too, the Congress of Paris occupied itself. At the instigation of Count Cavour, the condition of Italy was brought under its notice, and there can be no doubt that out of the Congress and the part that Sardinia assumed as representative of Italian nationality came the great succession of events which ended in the establishment of a king of Italy in the palace of the Quirinal. The adjustment of the condition of the Danubian principalities, too, engaged much attention and discussion, and a highly ingenious arrangement was devised for the purpose of keeping those provinces from actual union, so that they might be coherent enough to act as a rampart against Russia, without being so coherent as to cause Austria any alarm for her own somewhat disjointed, not to say distracted, political system. All these artificial and complex arrangements presently fell to pieces, and the principalities became in the course of no very long time an independent state under a hereditary prince. But for the hour it was hoped that the independence of Turkey and the restriction of Russia, the security of the Christian provinces, the neutrality of the Black Sea, and the closing of the straits against war vessels had been bought by the war. England lost some 24,000 men in the war, of whom hardly a sixth fell in battle or died of wounds. Cholera and other diseases gave grim account of the rest. Forty-one millions of money were added by the campaign to the national debt. Not much, it will be seen, was there in the way of mere military glory to show for the cost. Our fleets had hardly any chance of making their power felt, the ships of the Allies took Bomarzunt in the Baltic and Kinburn in the Black Sea, and bombarded several places, but the war was not one that gave a chance to a Nelson, even if a Nelson had been at hand. Among the accidental and unpleasant consequences of the campaign, it is worth mentioning the quarrel in which England became involved with the United States because of our Foreign Enlistment Act. At the close of December, 1854, Parliament hurriedly passed an act authorizing the formation of a foreign legion for service in the war, and some Swiss and Germans were recruited who never proved of the slightest service. Prussia and America both complained that the zeal of our recruiting functionaries outran the limits of discretion and of law. One of our consuls was actually put on trial at Cologne, and America made a serious complaint of the enlistment of her citizens. England apologized, but the United States were out of temper and insisted in sending our minister, Mr. Crampton, away from Washington, and some little time passed before the friendly relations of the two states were completely restored. So the Crimean War ended. It was one of the unlucky accidents of the hour, 
that the curtain fell on the Crimea upon what may be considered a check to the arms of England. There were not a few in this country who would gladly have seen the peace negotiations fail in order that England might thereby have an opportunity of reasserting her military supremacy in the eyes of Europe. Never during the campaign, nor for a long time before it, had England been in so excellent a condition for war as she was when the warlike operations suddenly came to an end. The campaign had indeed only been a training time for us, after the unnerving relaxation of a long peace. We had learned some severe lessons from it, and not unnaturally there were impatient spirits who chafed at the idea of England's having no opportunity of putting these lessons to account. It was but a mere chance that prevented us from accomplishing the capture of the Redan, despite the very serious disadvantages with which we were hampered in our enterprise as compared with our allies and their simultaneous operation. With just a little better generalship the Redan would have been taken. As it was, even with the generalship that we had, the next attempt would not have been likely to fail. But the Russians abandoned Sebastopol, and our principal ally was even more anxious for peace than the enemy, and we had no choice but to accept the situation. The war had never been popular in France. It had never had even that amount of popularity which the French people accorded to their emperor's later enterprise, the campaign against Austria. Louis Napoleon had had all he wanted. He had been received into the society of European sovereigns and had made what the French public were taught to consider a brilliant campaign. It is surprising to anyone who looks calmly back now on the history of the Crimean War to find what an extravagant amount of credit the French army obtained by its share in the operations. Even in this country it was at the time an almost universal opinion that the French succeeded in everything they tried, that their system was perfect, that their tactics were beyond improvement, that they were a contrast to us in every respect. Much of this absurd delusion was no doubt the result of a condition of things among us which no reasonable Englishman would exchange for all the imaginary triumphs that a court historiographer ever celebrated. It was due to the fact that our system was open to the criticism of every pen that chose to assail it. Not a spot in our military organization escaped detection and exposure. Every detail was keenly criticized every weakness was laid open to public observation. We invited all the world to see where we were failing and what were the causes of our failure. Our journals did the work for the military system of England that Matthew Arnold says Goethe did for the political and social systems of Europe, struck its finger upon the weak places and said, Thou ailest here and here while the official and officious journals of the French Empire were sounding paeans to the honor of the emperor and his successes, to his generals, his officers, his commissariat, his transport service, his soldiers, his camp, pioneers and all, our leading papers of all shades of politics were only occupied in pointing out defects and blaming those who did not instantly remedy them. Unpatriotic conduct, it may be said. I truly if the conduct of the doctor be unfriendly when he tells that we have the symptoms of failing health and warns us to take some measures for rest and renovation. Some of the criticisms of the English press were undoubtedly inaccurate and rash, but their general effect was bracing, healthful, successful. 
Their immediate result was that which has already been indicated, to leave the English army at the close of the campaign far better able to undertake prolonged and serious operations of war than it had been at any time during the campaign's continuance. For the effect of the French system on the French army, we should have to come down a little later in history and study the workings of imperialism as they displayed themselves in the confidence, the surprises, and the collapse of 1870. Still, there was a feeling of disappointment in this country at the close of the war. This was partly due to dissatisfaction with the manner in which we had carried on the campaign, and partly to distrust of its political results. Our soldiers had done splendidly, but our generals and our system had done poorly indeed. Only one first-class reputation of a military order had come out of the war, and that was by the common consent of the world awarded to a Russian, to General Totleben, the defender of Sebastopol. No new name was made on our side or on that of the French, and some promising or traditional reputations were shattered. The political results of the war were to many minds equally unsatisfying. We had gone into the enterprise for two things, to restrain the aggressive and aggrandizing spirit of Russia, and to secure the integrity and independence of Turkey as a power capable of upholding herself with credit among the states of Europe. Events which happened more than twenty years later will have to be studied before anyone can form a satisfactory opinion as to the degree of success which attended each of these objects. For the present it is enough to say that there was not among thoughtful minds at the time a very strong conviction of success either way. Lord Aberdeen had been modest in his estimate of what the war would do. He had never had any heart in it, and he was not disposed to exaggerate its beneficent possibilities. He estimated that it might perhaps secure peace in the east of Europe for some twenty-five years. His modest expectation was prophetic. Indeed, it a little overshot the mark. Twenty-two years after the close of the Crimean campaign, Russia and Turkey were at war again. End of section 26